Our reading today is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, St. Aldate. A privilege and a pleasure to share with you this morning. And if you've got a Bible, please do turn <coughs> to John chapter 2. And I'm really going to just be drawing out one main point from that rich passage that I encourage you to go away and perhaps revisit it this week. There's so much that's in there. But let's pray. Lord, thank you that you changed water into wine. Lord, we pray that you would do that alchemy of grace in our lives this week, in those situations and those needs and those issues that we have. Lord, we bring them to you. And we pray alchemy of grace, transformation, and the water into wine. Amen. Well, I was walking down George Street earlier this week uh, when a middle-aged man, perhaps a little bit older, depends how old is middle-aged. I feel quite young, but technically I'm very middle-aged. And uh, he was on one side of the road, and there was a lady on the other side. It's a very wide road, and he was screaming at her. And in between them, there wasn't any traffic, but there was a little terrier, uh, not on a leash, just heading towards the man. And uh, from what I could infer, she had obviously said to him, your dog should be on a lead. And uh, he then, at the top of his voice, uh, shouted out, you don't get to tell me what to do. You don't get to tell me what to do. I stood for a while, thinking this is quite good pantomime and entertainment. And uh, no, in case it got worse, I would have stepped in. And uh, he then went into a coffee shop, and I went on. But you don't get to tell me what to do. Does anyone? Who gets to tell us what to do? And on what basis? What I witnessed was an example of what's termed reactance in psychology. And that describes an emotional reaction 
to pressure or persuasion that results in the strengthening or the adoption of a contrary belief. It's a kind of upping the ante. One behavioral therapist called Jane Ehrman, she wrote this, no one really likes being told what to do. Resistance is ingrained into our culture and our brains from a young age. Everyone has some form of inner rebel that likes to question or do the opposite of what we're told to do. You don't get to tell me what to do. But does anyone? About 20 years ago, I was on holiday in France with my family and my son, Joel, he was about six then. Uh, obviously, he's about 26 now, doing a PhD at Imperial in physics. He's a smart guy. Uh, but we were at an adventure park and he went up a slide and it was a really big slide. It was sort of like 10 foot tall. And at the top, unlike many slides that you find in parks in England that are kind of fenced off so there's only one way that you can travel, this didn't have any sides to it. And my boy, this brilliant would-be physicist, looked and thought, what's the best way down? Is it to go down the slide with these sort of French kids? Or is it to be existentially free, choisi la vie, and to do my own thing? And so he sort of peered down and thought, can I go paratrooper? And I was sat there watching, and I suddenly realized He's going to jump. <laughs> so I stood up. I said, Tiff. I said, Joel, do not jump. And he looked at me, and he heard me, and he ignored me, and he jumped. And down he went, landed badly, ruined the holiday. I've forgiven him, but I just wanted to share that. It's not relevant to my talk, but it's still there. Um, <laughs> For the rest of the holiday, I had to carry him on my neck with his terribly sprained ankle. But obedience or reactance? Obedience or reactance? How are we going to live? And I suppose it depends on what we're being told to do and by whom. Is it a good ask? Is it coming from a good person? Is it for a good reason? Is it for our good. The follower of Jesus is invited into this dance of obedience. In our reading, chapter 2 of John, Jesus is at a wedding when the wine runs out. This is a disaster. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was one of the highest virtues in that culture and it was the duty of a host at a wedding to provide everything all the families all the friends indeed the whole village were invited and the wedding didn't just last for two hours after the wedding event but it could last for days and it was the responsibility of the host's family, of the groom's family, to provide and provide and provide for everyone. And the wine ran out. And for the wine to run out, that's the end of the party. And that is dishonor. And that shame is not going to be easily lived down. And Mary is at this wedding in Cana. 
And Mary sees the problem. And Mary knows the solution. Mary is moved with compassion. What a beautiful woman the mother of the church is. She sees and she knows and she cares and she wants to do something about it and she knows that only God can make a difference to this situation. And fortunately, she's on good terms with God. She's God's son's mother. And she goes and acts in order to turn this crisis around. And Mary birthed Jesus into the world And wonderfully, Mary births the start of Jesus' ministry. She initiates the first miracle of Jesus. And in so doing, she offers us the first principle of discipleship. And in verse 5, and this is where I want to linger this morning, she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus and his mother have a little interaction. Uh, We can talk about why and what that means later. I'm not going to go into it here. But it comes down to this. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. This is the first principle of discipleship and precipitates the first miracle of Jesus. Now, these were servants of the family throwing the party. Jesus is just a young guest, but he patently has the authority to instruct and to direct and to obey. And the Christian life is predicated on recognizing that Jesus has the authority to direct us and instruct us and to whom we must obey. And she says, do whatever he tells you to do. Christian life involves doing, not just thinking. It's not just an intellectual assent to propositions. It's not simply about an intimate relationship with someone, although it is that. It involves a doing. Jesus said, you are my disciples if you obey my word. And he called those who followed him Disciples, the word disciples in the Greek, mathetes, from which we get our word mathematics. And it means to adhere and to be an apprentice. And it's an instruction that has a consequence and leads to an action. A disciple is not simply to admire Jesus. They're not simply to appreciate the stories of Jesus and to recite them. A disciple doesn't just believe certain things about the nature and character, about the being, the ontology of Jesus. A disciple is as a disciple does. A disciple of Jesus is defined by what they do. Now, I know some here may be feeling a little shaky at the moment, saying, hang on, we're Protestants, and I think we might protest. We're justified by faith. Absolutely, we are. There's only one way in, and that's to come empty-handed and trust and rely and put our faith and our belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again and make him Lord. But then what? Then we become disciples. 
And the disciple is, as a disciple does, do whatever he tells you to do. Then he says, do whatever he tells you to do. That is not whatever. That is whatever. That's everything he tells you to do. The very last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven in Matthew 28, called the Great Commission. Some have said it's the Great Omission because Jesus says, go and make disciples. There's that word again. I failed my maths O level twice. I've never been very good at that mathematics. I'm trying to be a bit better at mathetes, discipling. But he says, go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And in the Gospels, there are over 400 direct commands and instructions from the Lord Jesus. 400 of them just there. In the rest of the New Testament, as the apostles seek to explicate and work out the implications of the 400, they add another 600. There are over 1,000 commands and direct instructions in the New Testament. Do whatever he tells you to do. Christianity is a way of life to be observed, to be followed, to be practiced. And it's not DIY. There are rules laid out, principles and precepts, not pick and mix. It's not multiple choice. Jesus doesn't say, here are 600, have a go at 12. Do whatever he tells you to do. He tells you to do. A whole life. There are voices telling us what to do. It starts off with our parents and then our peers and our passions. They're all P's now. Politicians, professors, the man, the markets, our DNA, fashion, adverts, social media influencers. They all want to have a say and to tell us what to do. Daily we're pelted with thousands of subliminal and often straightforward instructions on what to eat and what to drink and what to wear and what to do and what to buy and where to go on holiday and how to invest and how to vote and how to donate. Our, our life is surrounded by all these different exigencies instructing us telling us what to do. But first and foremost, the disciple of Jesus does what he tells us to do. And the problem is often we just try to juggle it. And which is the loudest voice instructing you? So many voices and so many choices, but on what basis do we decide? The thing is only... Jesus has the purest of motives in what he asks us to do. And only Jesus has your best interest at heart. And only Jesus loved you to death. And on the basis of that, you can trust and respond to what he tells you to do. And where does he tell us what to do? Well, it's not guesswork. We've got Jesus' words, as we often say here, and direct ourselves to because it's here in this treasure that his truth is revealed and his way for our life is laid out. 
His, his teaching and his life and his word and his instructions and the apostles' commentary on that. That's where we discover what we're supposed to do. We're to be those whose lives are predicated on the word of God revealed in the book. And we've got Jesus' community, the church, that spans 2,000 years across countries and continents and cultures. And the people of God who've read this word and sought to apply it and pray it and so on. And so it's in the church with the word that we find out what we are to do. And perhaps some of you listening might be new to all of this and you might want to consider what Stephen was talking about earlier about attending an Alpha course. We're at week three, which is the best week to start the Alpha course. And there over a meal in an informal setting, we seek to get to grips with who this Jesus is and what it is that he's calling us to do. Or maybe you've been at it for a while, and as we said, there's something called Good Ground. You can find out more on our website, stainalldates.org. But on Monday night, we're having a meeting, and Tuesday night, to work out how to get into a mentoring, partnering relationship so we can understand what we're supposed to do and the trajectory, the direction that that discipleship should take. Well, that's the first thing. Jesus invites us into a dance of obedience. But secondly, we're to do whatever Jesus tells us, despite the fact that often we find ourselves in a culture that says, don't do what he tells you, do whatever you want to do. And there is a reactance and there is a resistance in our culture and in our context to obedience of Jesus. Just listen to some of the songs that our culture sings. Some. How about Sinatra's big ballad, I Did It My Way? Well, I wonder how that worked out. Did it my way. What about soft rock Fleetwood Max? You can go your own way. Or electronic band presets, Do What You Want. Or the rapper Lil Uzi Vert's, Now I Do What I Want. Or country Pam... Willis's. Anyone know Pam Willis? Shame on you. <laughs> she, she sings, don't tell me what to do. Or reggae Jason Mraz's, I can only do me, you do me. And surely it's good to be authentic, to be existentialist, to make our own decision, to choose life. Choisis la vie, je suis authentique. I do my own thing. I resist the, ra the rat race and the crowd. I'm going my way. But are you? I suppose it all depends on where it ends and where that decision and that own volition takes you. I mean, is it good? Is it for your good? Is it good for others? God's very first instruction, the first time the word commandment comes in the Bible, right at the start, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 Adam and Eve are in paradise, our first forefathers. There they are in that beautiful picture that's given to us. They're in paradise with God. I mean, it couldn't get better than that. There they are, naked with the person that they loved in paradise, with God's blessing on them. And God says, you can eat whatever you want, but don't eat that, because that will do you harm. But eat everything else and enjoy yourselves. What a gift, what a God, what a creation. The first command was good and for our good, 
like all of God's instructions. And then the very first instruction is followed by the very first temptation to disobey. Reactance, not obedience. And the serpent comes along who intends their harm, not their good, and incites them to disobey God, to disregard his instruction, and to eat the forbidden fruit. And God was honest. He was telling the truth. Don't do that or you're going to die. And they did that. And everything unraveled. God's word is true. And we flourish when we do what he says. And we perish when we don't. So much for going your own way. And being your own captain. There's a warning right at the start of the book. But the truth is, and we all know this, it's not always easy not always easy to do what Jesus tells us to do, even though it's in our interest and for our good, and God has only got good things in store for us. Often not easy. And parts of us, as it were, pull away from that and resist that and react to that. Jesus' ethics and values and commands don't always sit well with our culture, and often we're influenced more by that than we are by Scripture. Why does Jesus want to have a say in what I do? Why does Jesus want to have a say in how I live? Why does Jesus want to have a say in what I think and what I say and what goes on in my heart? Why does Jesus want to have a say in how I spend my money? Why does Jesus want to have a say in how I live my life? Why does Jesus want to have a say in my sex life? Years ago, one of my former students, I used to be a chaplain here, and one of my former students rang me up quite late at night, and they were a bit breathless on the end of the phone. They said, hi, size Dave here. Um, can you just remind me, why is it I can't sleep with my girlfriend? <laughs> I said, ah. And uh, I could see he was in a hurry, and I gave him a short answer, you know. Why? Sometimes God's commands seem unreasonable. Jesus didn't explain to the servants why they had to go and do the arduous effort of manually pumping all that wine and pouring it into those six great big vats and fill it with water. What a silly thing to be doing. But Jesus knew what he was saying, why he was saying it, and what the end result would be. And obedience, sometimes a walk of faith into the unknown. And it's often what goes against what we'd like to do. You know, when Jesus told me to marry my wife, Tiffany, I thought, good one. What a great idea. Fantastic. I'm punching above my weight here. Posh girl from Jollywood. Wonderful, you know. I think it was more difficult for her. I think, do I really have to marry that butcher from Bristol or what? When Jesus told me to go to theology college and, get ordained and become a vicar. I thought, no, you're joking. I want to be in the vineyard. When Jesus told me to come 20 odd years ago, be a chaplain in Oxford, I was nearly physically sick, honestly. Adrenaline pumped around my system and I felt I was shaking for a week with fear and the prospect of the trauma that would be in being a minister in this congregation. It wasn't true, but that's how I felt. But we've got to do whatever he tells us to do. 
because whatever he tells us to do comes from the best person in the world with, the best in, with your best interests at heart. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, which is a kind of brilliant conversation imagined between an experienced demon and a younger demon on how they can uh, undermine God's work in, Christ, uh, in Christians. He says this, be not deceived, Wormwood. That's the name of the younger one. Don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human who no longer desires but still intends to do our enemy's will looks around upon the universe in which it seems every trace has vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and yet still obeys. I believe that some of you here today, maybe some watching online, that God very specifically is speaking into your life at the moment and very specifically is calling you to do things, calling you to go to places, calling you to act in certain ways, and you are feeling more reactance than a desire of obedience. And you've been trying to work it out and write it all out on paper and argue it out and try and get around it, but you know that God is calling you to do something. The heart of discipleship is do whatever he tells you to do because he's the best person in the universe with your best interests at heart. And then finally, when you do what Jesus says, Jesus can do what Jesus does. When you do what, he's, what he says, he can do what he does. And what he does is fantastic. So here at the wedding in Cana, things are in a mess. But the servants do as Jesus says, and they fill these six giant water jars that they use for ritual washing. And as they drew out the water, it had been transformed into wine. That's the alchemy of grace. Where our obedience is wed to his loving power. And a transformation and a grace takes place. Where our obedience, as it were, opens the door for heaven's goodness to just seep through. The water went in and the wine came out. The obedience went in and the abundance comes out. It's not just a sip of wine. Six jars, and these were like this tall, that's 150 gallons worth. That's 900 bottles of wine. They've already been partying for a while. They've drunk it all. Jesus says, let the party continue. Jesus brings the party to the party. And the wine taster tastes it. And he says, what? He tastes it again. He said, I can't believe this. He says, usually... They bring out the best wine first when people's taste buds are up for it. And then, when their taste buds are numbed by everything, they bring out the plonk. But you've saved the best wine till last. This is not just last year's Prosecco. This is like 1982 Premier Grand Cru Chateau Margot. I don't know what that is, but I read it online. <laughs> thousand pound a pop what looked like being the worst wedding turned out to be the best ever Jesus can turn things around 
He can turn the game around. He can turn the situation around. And the turnaround hinges on our obedience. The party was over. The hosts were ashamed. The guests are frustrated. People are getting their bags and their coats. And Jesus turns it around and brings the party to the party and mixes divine glory in the everyday. You know, the wine may have run out in your life. and Maybe you feel that. Maybe you feel the party's run out. Maybe you feel it's run dry. Maybe you've messed up. Maybe you've hit rock bottom. Maybe you're facing crisis. Maybe you feel you're facing shame or disaster or failure. If you do what he says, he will do what he does. And he will turn it around. Maybe you think the best days are behind you. The best are in front if you do what he says. Perhaps you're uncertain about the career choice or your future or a move. Do whatever he says. Perhaps in your marriage you're facing real difficulties. Do whatever he says. Perhaps you're tempted to do something you know is not right, to enter into a relationship or a business transaction. Do whatever he says. Perhaps you're struggling in your own life with a personal issue of temptation or sin or you're trapped. Or Do whatever he says. Why? Because he knows best. And he has got your best interest at heart. In the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous German philosopher, I like to call him Nietzsche, because that's how it looks to me written out. Brought, he was brought up in a religious home. His father was chaplain to the emperor. He hated the church. He hated it because of its morality. But nevertheless, he understood one core thing. And in an age when people's views and ethics and ideals and politics and financial budgets and cabinets change on a daily basis. He understood and spoke the truth. And he said this, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. Because there results and has always resulted something that has made life worth living. The best life, your best life, a life worth living. Heaven on earth comes when we don't live doing what we want to do. We don't live a life of reactance to what he wants us to do. But as Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Amen.